2: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 11 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers
0: and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about.
1: On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Amanda Palmer about her wild and wandering path to the rock stage, and about how behind her artistic ambitions is the drive
2: to feel real.
1: What I really wanted was to feel like I was doing something that contributed and mattered and that I was in a true conversation with the world and with other people.
0: Here's Debbie Melman. Everyone knows that the business model for musicians isn't what it used to be. In this internet age, you can't just make a recording and expect all of your fans to pay for it when it's so easy for them to stream it or download it for free. But you can ask them to help out. This has been Amanda Palmer's Approach. The alt-rock singer-songwriter asked her fans to support her in making an album, which became the world's most successful music Kickstarter. She writes about the new rules of exchange for artists and their audiences in her book, The Art of Asking, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Let People Help. She's here today to talk about that, her music, her life, and maybe even to sing a song. Amanda fucking Palmer? Welcome to Design Matters.
1: Oh, thank you very fucking much. Very, very, very fucking happy to be here. <laughs> Me too. Getting fucking Millman. How are
0: you? I'm good. I'm good. This has been a long time in the making, this
1: interview. And we've already managed to insert five fuckings into the podcast. Six. Six. <laughs> are you counting? Uh, yeah, I'm so happy we finally are doing this.
0: You grew up in Massachusetts in a collapsing colonial fixer-upper that your parents spent the entirety of your childhood trying to make heatable and habitable, as you write. You live with your mother, your stepfather, your three siblings, and you started playing piano when you were three. Your mother first taught you piano basics and encouraged you to take lessons. And I understand you hated practicing. (laughs) You found it incredibly frustrating to sight-read music. But you could figure out how to play anything you heard on the radio. How could you do that?
1: Uh, some musicians just have a good ear. But how do you know
0: what to pick out on the piano keyboard? That's, how do you
1: figure that out? That's kind of like asking an artist, how do you know how to make a tree on a piece of paper? There's an intuitiveness to music the same way there's an intuitiveness to drawing. It's a little harder to explain to someone who doesn't speak music. But I've actually, I've had success teaching. Um, I had a really brief period where I was giving piano lessons to to fans who would ask me. And um, I had a really classically trained girl come to me and her her request was, I don't understand what that is. I don't understand how you could look at a piano, listen to a song by Radiohead and figure out what that is, what those chords are, what they're doing. And what I found is there's an incredible tool in the human voice. And when I think about how the ear works and how, you know, what we call by ear and listening to, you know, a song on the radio and then sitting down at a piano and doing the translation, I didn't even realize what I was doing until I had to impart that technique to somebody else. And it was basically just using my voice. You match your voice to whatever you're hearing. And then if the song is here, and it's here, and it's here, and it's not here, but it's here, you can kind of figure out sort of where it is on the piano. And that's where that's where the the talent of actually knowing what this tone your voice is making matches on the piano. But that's partly i think talent and gift and also practice you know if you play enough piano you 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 start to match tones the same way as an as a visual artist you would match the brown of a tree to the brown of your crayola box and and it would just make sense that that's brown in the world and brown in your palette
0: i mean i think the biggest difference for me in in that comparison as somebody that does do a lot of drawing in my life is that you see something and based on what you see, you reflect that image two dimensionally. Whereas music has had a really magical context for me. It feels like you're making something out
1: of nothing. Well, that's just because you're thinking about eyes and ears differently. But if you just think of ears as things that see sound, it's a much easier <laughs> it's a much easier translation. And there are a lot of great parallels between sound and vision and the way we visualize and then reinterpret as visual artists versus the way we hear and reinterpret as sound artists. But since we talk so visually, you know, we don't talk orally. Most of our metaphors and most of our discussions are about sight because it's so essential and so important. But sound really is, I mean, when you think about the amount of information that you seep in and soak in from the world people's tones of voices, the, the the silence in a room, the silence in a conversation, the sound of traffic outside. We're constantly processing audio information the way we're processing visual information. I think we're just not as aware of it and, and especially aware of our own talents, even as non-musicians. People who tell me that they're tone deaf... But they still speak, and anyone who can speak is definitely speaking musically, even if they're not aware of it, and they're talking like this, and they're ending their sentences like this. And no one is tone deaf. Um, They might not feel musically inclined, but anyone who can speak is essentially inherently musical.
0: Now, what kind of music did you play when you were younger? I read that you wrote satirical songs about Starbucks.
1: Oh, the, that w- that wasn't until I was at the ripe old age of like 17. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> elderly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, looking back with perspective is always fun because, you know, I had a ton of musical influences around me. And the more, the older I get, the wider I see the palette was. You know, I was watching a lot of television. You know, when I started the Dresden Dolls in my mid-20s and I was asked by a gazillion journalists, you know, what are your influences? It was the easiest lazy journalist question. What are your influences? And I would reel off what I considered, you know, good, respectable, important, good influences like my mom's Beatles records and the the records by the Doors and the Beach Boys and— You weren't talking about the Partridge family. Right. And I wasn't talking about the television and the, Bra- the Brady Bunch theme song, which I'm sure rattled around in my head forever and probably influenced my songwriting and the Kit Kat commercials. And, you know, I was also in a bunch of musicals as a kid. I loved musical theater and I was in community theater and in, you know, the sixth grade production of Cats and the Pirates of Penzance and and that kind of stuff. And if we learn through repetition – I had my choice of music, which was the stuff I was listening to on my Walkman, which at the age of ten was, you know, Prince and Cindy Lauper and Madonna, and then in my teen years it was more indie stuff and goth stuff and the Cure and the legendary Pink Dots and Current 93 and PJ Harvey and Nick Cave. And there was a lot of repetition there, but there was also the film soundtracks that I listened to and the way Vim vendors sort of curated these rock records that were also film soundtracks, and stepping back, it was a huge hodgepodge. But it always is, you know. Any artist who is just like, "Well, I was influenced by Bach," <laughs> you you can believe that that's true for them. But unless they're living in a complete bubble, which pretty much no one is, the influences creep in everywhere.
0: You attended your first rock concert when you were 11, and it was only then that you realized that Cyndi Lauper was a real person. Up until that moment, you thought that Cyndi Lauper, Prince, and Madonna were being played by actors.
1: Really? Really? Not really, really. But I love that my parents are sitting in the uh, studio audience for this podcast, because it was like by the grace of God and uh, my stepdad, John, who offered to like take it for the team and take the six... 11-year-old, whatever, I think we were 5th or 6th graders, to the Cyndi Lauper concert. And I still appreciate that to this day. Thanks, John. Thank you, John. I would love to ask him about what his experience of that concert was. I, as I remember, we had nosebleed seats. Cyndi Lauper was like the size of an ant. Was it the Girls Just Want to Have Fun tour, the True Colors it tour? It was the True Colors tour. Oh, that um, was the Best, And there was also a full circle moment in my life when Cindy Lauper invited the Dresden Dolls to go on the you True Colors tour yeah. in 2007. And I thought, oh, my God, if 10-year-old me could see me. Um, you know, one of the things that would be important to point out is I did have live music in my life a lot in church. And I went to church every Sunday and there was the organ and there was the choir. But to me, that was sort of somebody else's world and somebody else's music. That wasn't the the music that I went home and put, you know, and was like, I can't wait to get home and listen to those motets and anthems and hymns on my Walkman. My world of music was Prince and Cyndi Lauper and Madonna. And you didn't go to church on Sunday and see Prince and Cyndi Lauper and Madonna. So those things were... I never considered them at odds with each other, but the fact that, you know, there was the world of MTV and the kind of music that I wanted to emulate and listen to and there was the world of church music and then there was the world of school music, which was as a second grader and a fifth grader, you go into music class and you're sort of handed out sheets and books and you're – made to sing these songs, and you don't necessarily like them or feel connected to them. And some of them you like, and some of them you don't. And if you take those pictures, and then you rewind the human clock, which is always what I'm fascinated by, it's like, how did we do this 5000 years ago? And how has it evolved? And does it still make sense for how we live and what the deal is? You know, all of those things were somewhat disconnected. And it wasn't like we were just in a village with the song, you know, the capital, the songs we sing when someone dies, when we want it to rain, when we are celebrating, when we are unhappy, and everyone knows those songs and everyone sings them together. And one of the things that I find fascinating about music now is everything is very compartmentalized. We don't all speak a common musical language. We, we've become very siloed.
0: And we fight over it.
1: <laughs> yeah. And... You know, where music used to just have a common purpose and the songs were shared, there was no ownership, there was no copyright, there was just there's music and we do it together. And nowadays, I mean, I think we've gotten about as far from that as possible with Taylor Swift battling Artist X about who should not shouldn't put their music up on Spotify. And when you take the long view, you look at that and it all looks insane.
0: It looks really petty.
1: Yeah, it does. And, and kind of a sad state of affairs, considering what music can make possible.
0: I read that your high school principal told you that though you might have thought you were special, <laughs> you weren't. She actually told you that you weren't special.
1: Yeah. But, you know, in that kind of offhanded way that high school principals will do when they're dealing with a discipline case— I'm not trying to defend her. <laughs> I'm just saying you could look at this as a pro or a con because, you know, this is sort of when, when you hear people talking about millennials especially, mm. you've got that like if everybody thinks they're a, a special snowflake problem. But also, you know, you never want to crush a child's sense of possibility and uniqueness and adventure and risk. And I, I mean as a parent now – you're confronted with these questions, which is how special do you want your child to feel? Because if you make your child feel too special, they'll probably be a wreck (laughs) as well. (laughs) So you need to find some decent balance between um, aggrandizing your child and giving them the tools to not feel crushed under the sheeple and the oppressiveness of sameness out in the world. You write about how you couldn't
0: handle criticism, no matter how well-intentioned. And when you were sharing your songs or playing live simply terrified you since any rejection of your work felt like a direct rejection of the entirety of you. And I'm wondering if that is why you considered being a veterinarian. I read that you liked your cat and figured <laughs> that that qualified you for the profession. Yeah, and cats don't judge.
1: That's probably why. <laughs> I had a cat that judged quite a lot, actually. <laughs> um. I mean, I don't think that that is a unique experience as far as art and criticism go. I, I don't know many artists who have an easy time separating out criticism of their art from criticism of themselves. And I mean, the, the more personal the art, the harder that is to compartmentalize. But what artist doesn't consider their art personal? You went to Wesleyan University. What was what
0: did you major in?
1: I was pretty sold on the idea of being a professional musician and performer and songwriter of some kind. And I was sort of confused about going to college because there wasn't rock college or or if there was I hadn't heard about it and In my family, you went to a liberal arts school. And I was like, okay, well, it doesn't sound that bad. My sister did it. My older siblings did it. I will go. But I had a really hard time socially finding my place at college, and I never really found it. I went into an incredibly dark sort of introverted, confused period during college. And I was also, as I had been in high school, a really diligent student. I was too scared to get bad grades. You know the idea of not turning in assignments or not studying or not anything was too frightening to me in in my perfectionism. Why because uh, I was terrified to just be seen as a failure by anybody in any way, and so the you know I was still looking back at my time in Wesleyan I was personally pretty unhappy but Had it not been for Wesleyan, I wouldn't have been exposed to, you know, deep, profound experimental music, the likes of which I had sort of tasted and tested in high school. But I took an incredible experimental music class with Alvin Lussier, who in the world of experimental musicians is a smaller heavyweight But he opened the door to Laurie Anderson and John Cage and Steve Reich and Mm. Terry Riley and the Serialists and the New York School. And that opened my mind to whole new worlds of music and ways of thinking about music that have stayed with me to this day. And I also took some courses in performance art that opened me up to the performance artists of the 60s and the 70s and reading Grail Marcus and – You know, I also studied the Holocaust and I studied Chaucer and I studied – I learned how to speak German fluently, which consumed me for a year and my major wound up being kind of by default German studies. And, you know, I was also in the very privileged position of being an upper middle class white kid whose parents were paying for college and, you know, I was – pretty unaware of how lucky I was at the time that I was, you know, didn't have to go straight into the workforce and just get a shitty job at eighteen and I got to be around all of these artistic heavyweights and 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 soak up all this information even if I didn't know what to do with it at the time.
0: You graduated when you were twenty two and have written about how you really, really didn't want to get a conventional job and write about how all the adults you'd ever encountered, your parents, your friends' parents all had grown-up jobs, which you considered to be mysterious, complicated, white-collar jobs, jobs in tall buildings, jobs that involved computers, jobs about which you understood absolutely nothing and in which you had no interest. What did you expect to do once you graduated?
1: I wanted to make art, and I didn't know what you did. I didn't know how you became a money-making art maker, but I figured I would figure it out, and right out the gate out of college, I started street performing, um, which was technically a kind of making art. It wasn't the kind of art making that, uh, you know, was my true passion. But between standing on a box painted white and collecting money as a busker and doing, I did a lot of nude modeling, which is actually something I don't talk about a lot in the book or out in the world. But there was a few years from, you know, about 20 to 25, where I did a lot of nude modeling for mostly for college art classes and, you know, Cambridge Center for Adult Education, life drawing and sculpting and painting. And I was just never afraid to take off my clothes. So I figured I might as well get paid 15 bucks an hour to like sit around lounging moderately still naked and chatting with artists. And I loved being in that community. And I was much happier getting paid $15 an hour as a, as a naked life model than I was my other you know twelve dollars an hour being paid as a as an ice cream and coffee barista which was my other job at the time.
0: I actually have a list of the jobs that you I had. Did a lot
1: of jobs, and and I think it would be fun. But before you you also got a full ride
0: scholarship to get a master's degree in anything you wanted at Heidelberg University. But after enrolling and going there, you quickly withdrew.
1: Um, yeah, and I and that was that was a strange little chapter in my life. So I graduated Wesleyan, and my plan was to move to Heidelberg, and get a master's in whatever I wanted. And I figured I would move in the theater music direction. And upon getting to Heidelberg University and my full-ride scholarship and my paid-for apartment and everything, I I sort of looked around and thought, oh, my God, another two years of school. Why am I doing this? I, I wasn't really enjoying being in school. I wanted to start my life and in a in a move that was pretty dramatic at the time, I ditched the scholarship, ditched Germany, had moved into an apartment, and as soon as I had moved in, packed up all my stuff and moved out. But I would be remiss if I didn't also add the fact that I had just fallen in love with a guy in Boston, um, a cello player named Jonah, and he drew me back. I didn't want to give up on the relationship, and I was in love, and... We broke up six months after I moved home. Um, but I think it was pretty fateful. I think staying in school would have probably been a mistake. I was done and done with academia and ready to start real life.
0: I want to share with our listeners the list of jobs that you had. Go for it. <laughs> so you rented a room in a dilapidated chairhouse in Somerville, Massachusetts. This is where you became an ice cream and coffee barista making $9.50 an hour plus tips. But you've also had, aside from being the artist you are now, you were an unlicensed massage therapist working out of your college dorm room but did not give happy endings. You were making $35 an hour doing that. True that. You were a naming and branding consultant for dot-com companies. You were an unpaid playwright and director a waitress in a German beer garden, a vendor of clothes recycled from thrift shops and resold to your college campus center, an assistant in a picture framing shop, an actress in experimental films, a new drawing painting model for art schools, thank you very much, an organizer and hostess of donation-only underground salons, a clothes check girl for illegal sex fetish sloth parties. <laughs> Sorry, Mom and Dad.
1: And they through that job... Have, they can handle it by now. <laughs> they've, heard, they've heard this story.
0: And through that job, a sewing assistant for a bespoke leather handcuff manufacturer, a stripper, and briefly, a dominatrix. My, and... poor, my poor mother.
1: Hi. That's a, this is another high mom. But now that I've had a child, I feel so much more empowered to talk about uh, all of this stuff because I'm like, I'm a mom. I'm what allowed to we... have a past. What was <laughs> being a <laughs> dad? That's what Madonna said, too, when she first had her kid. It's pretty liberating. (laughs) What was it like to be a dominatrix? What did you do? Did you step on people and like put heels in
0: their backs and things?
1: You know, it wasn't very violent. What I found about my dominatrix job was the same thing I found about my stripping job, which is those are not really jobs about sex. They're about power, right? They're about emotion. I mean, my job as a stripper was... Yes, there's, you know, sex and image and nudity. But my God, like the seven hour shifts that I would clock at the glass slipper were not about sex and they were not about nudity. They were about lonely people. I met the loneliest guys at the glass slipper. And the way I look, I mean, I could be romanticizing it a little bit, but pretty much these people just desperately wanted to be seen, and they wanted company. And the job, yes, the job was to occasionally get up on stage and gyrate, but most of the job, um, especially at The Glass Slipper, where you got paid on commission from drinks that men would buy while you sat and talked to them, and this was, none of the talking was about sex, none of the talking was about nudity, none of the talking was about anything but really mundane conversation, kind of like being a, like, like a geisha, like a hostess. And I loved it because I love talking to strangers. And most of my evening was spent talking with people and just like a therapist, giving them a space in which to feel acknowledged as a human being. And I was pretty good at the job. And, you know, the gyrating on stage part, I was – again, like as a person who was not afraid to take their clothes off and be naked, that part was easy. Um, were I you not- born that way? What?
0: You're not, you, were you born that way? You're
1: not self-conscious I, at all? You'd have to ask my mom. Was I ever afraid to be naked? No, she she's She's nodding now. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah i mean i just in in that department i 've never felt i wish my sister was here too because i who knows how my sister and I came out so differently my sister won 't even take her clothes off in front of me <laughs> she 's so she 's so modest and I have just always been running around naked since since day one so who knows why or how but He's- you know the stripping was interesting too because I approached you know I, however old i was twenty five I approached it from a very, I am a feminist. You know, I, if I can go in there and make a hundred bucks an hour instead of making fifteen bucks an hour as a life model, I'm happy to do that. And I will go in there as a very empowered, smart, anthropologically curious person. And I mean, not everybody approached their jobs that way. There were some really sad, troubled cases in the strip club and the, the girls with the lockers next to me who had coke problems and who had body image problems and who were not look you know and there were the career strippers who had kids and were in their 30s whose husbands would pick them up from work so they could go home and be moms but everyone, you know, everyone in that family was like, "Why would we give up the earning potential of someone in this family who can make a hundred bucks an hour? That would be crazy." And those strippers were very, very different from the troubled nineteen-year-old strippers who were like doing coke all night and totally lost. And there I was in the middle, the one girl in the strip club who didn't actually shave her bush. Who was just like, "I'm the feminist stripper." So it was, it was a colorful, uh, it was a colorful scene. You, <laughs> you said that every single
0: one of the jobs that you had taught you about human vulnerability.
1: Yeah. Any job that I've ever had has definitely taught me about the hum- the human condition, the humanness in all of us and all of our desperate need to be seen and recognized. And you, you get a lot of that in the music industry. But I think by the time I was on stage with the Dresden Dolls, I had had a pretty hefty education in how human beings would like to be fundamentally acknowledged for who they are and what they need.
0: While working at the ice cream shop in Boston, you began to work as a living statue, a street performer standing in the middle of the sidewalk dressed as a white-faced bride, the eight-foot bride. How did you first come up with the idea?
1: You know, I remember being a kid in New York City and traveling in Europe. Living statues were, you know, you'd I think you'd probably see them in New York City in a roundabout, but in Europe... They're all over the place. There's living statues in London and in Paris. And, you know, street performance is something that I've thought about really deeply. And we take it for granted in our culture that these people exist and do this job. um, But it's got its own secret history. Um, And in fact, I didn't realize until I started writing my own book that Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Harvard Square, you know, the area right around Harvard was actually an incredibly important part of street performance history because it was illegal. And in the 50s or 60s, there was one single street performer. I forget the guy's name, but he basically fought for the rights of street performers to be able to play and collect money in the street. and that's sort of started a, a domino effect of Harvard Square being one of the destinations for street performers. And as a child, I mean, I remember my parents taking me at age 8, nine, ten into Harvard Square to see a film and get ice cream. And the fact that I was exposed to street performers on every corner was certainly something I took for granted at the time, that this is just a thing people do and these people exist. But um, one shouldn't take that for granted. They could have just as easily not been there. And so I remember, you know, age twenty twenty one, thinking, well, that's an option. I don't know how one does that. It looks pretty simple. You you stand up, you make art, you put a hat at your feet. Actually doing it was much more frightening than theorizing But if you talk to a bunch of different street performers, they all had to have that sort of trial by fire where theoretically, of course, you can stand on a corner and play an instrument or be a statue or... Paint art and put it, and put a bucket at your feet. Doing it is a terrifying leap into cold water because, oh my god! Like all of a sudden, it's just you asking the world for attention and money, and it feels very, very vulnerable and very, you know, if, if you're not in the right headspace, can feel very crass.
0: I did it very, very briefly when I came out of college when I was still thinking. <gasps> what did that you do? I sang. I sang and played a guitar with a couple of people, and I sang in Washington Square Park
1: to cover songs. Or cover songs.
0: All cover songs. And there's a moment where you have to go from being a person
1: to a performer. Entertainer. Right. (laughs) Not even performer. Like when you're doing street performance, I think you really are going into the realm of entertainer. Right. It's not like being on a stage where where you walk out from behind a curtain and you're above everybody else. Well, and everyone is choosing to be your audience. Right? When you're in the street, this is an unchosen audience and you really are moving into the realm of – entertainer. You're not there to be hitting everybody with like challenging material. Right. Yeah, yeah, we
0: sang Neil Young songs exactly. and Fleetwood Mac and Yeah,
1: it's a service job. It's you're in a service position. But
0: there was this moment where you go when you when you're you know, you're setting up and then you, you know you're just like everybody else on the
1: street and then all of a sudden you're not. Yeah, you change and there's the moment where you're also you're asking the environment to give you attention to listen and to listen attention and especially uh you know when people are busy and you feel like you're bothering them um it wears your ego down very slowly to be in a position where you you're not there to demand anybody's attention and if you think that you're a fantastic artist and you're doing a fantastic job too bad. <laughs> it's like you're not allowed to say, like, "Hey, wait a second, fuck you." Why aren't you stopping and paying attention to me? You just become a Zen performer, and you you accept that you are not in the driver's seat whatsoever. It's the audience's choice whether or not they're going to pay attention to you.
0: And you recant some remarkable stories of being hit with things that people throw at you. Uh, People groping you, you got kidnapped, but that was actually intentional, but it seemed really scary before (laughs) we knew it was in the book. Um, But you also really connected with people. You connected wordlessly. You were a silent statue. You connected with people with your eyes, and you've written about how you would silently try to communicate to people and say, thank you, I see you. Mm. And their eyes would say, nobody ever sees me. Thank you. And it seems to me that you helped them feel real. Did they help you feel real?
1: Oh, yeah. That was a two-way street. I mean, it still is. I I think my music career has been honestly no different from that, which is I didn't know quite what I was getting into when I started as a emotional songwriter, you know, desperately wanting to feel connection. In that sense, I think I am so happy that I walked through the hall of... Street performance, especially in silence. You know, I wasn't playing music for people on the street. I was just standing there. Again, there was a kind of a egolessness that I didn't start with, but that I came to understand that the above all connection, and yes, money was important, and yes, paying rent was important. But the... the profound and spiritual moments as now on stage and with fans was when an artist member and an audience member sort of merge in a mutual gaze, whether it's literal or symbolic. And in any media, in any art form, that's the moment. you know. And I was so happy when uh, Marina Abramovich did her Seeing. Um, her, her seeing – because I was like, that's just it. I the mean, artist is present. If you're talking about the fundamental, fundamental building blocks of anything in, in the realm of art, it can kind of all aspire to the condition of two human souls in mutual recognition. And then everything else is colorful noise, wonderful noise. And getting to have that moment with a lot of people was a fantastic education and a really wonderful experience to, to send me off into the world of, of music making.
0: You've written about how every single artist you know, not just the people you've met on the street, but every writer, every actor, every filmmaker, every, as you put it, crazed motherfucker who has decided to forego a life of predictable income, upward mobility, and simple tax returns, and instead pursued a life in which they made their living trying to somehow turn their dot-connecting brains inside out and show the results to the world, all boiled down to one thing— Believe me. Mm. Believe me. I'm real. Yeah, Amanda, why do so many people feel so unbelievably not real?
1: Oh, God. Um, It's a big question. Modern society has uh, disconnected us in a a way that I think we can barely comprehend. (laughs) Um, I'll answer this question differently uh, than I might have a year ago, especially having had a child. One of the things I've become super conscious of as I walk through the world, and I've been walking through a lot of environments, I've traveled pretty much constantly since this baby was a month old, nothing will underline and highlight how disconnected we have become as a human family, as walking through the world with a child and noticing How crazy we must seem to that baby. Mm. As opposed to the world he would have been born into a thousand or ten thousand years ago. You know, if you took a child from a few thousand years ago and put that child with its mother in a compact space with a lot of human beings... And none of those human beings are talking to each other. None of those human beings are really recognizing the presence of the baby. It would just literally never happen. Because back in the day, if you had a group of adults and there was a baby around and a mom around, there would probably be other kids. And everyone would kind of be pitching in and recognizing and accepting and everyone would sort of be working together. And we are so isolated from one another in so many situations and i think given the way we have constructed culture and socialness and how we communicate we think that we've progressed and we think that we're all very connected and we think that we're all very communicative but when you actually strip it down there's a lot wrong and the proof is in the pudding when you have a whole society of people who are depressed and Insecure and anxious and paranoid and worried and... Medicated. Medicated and and fundamentally feeling very unseen. You've got to look at the larger picture and say maybe we've constructed culture in a way that people are not feeling recognized, loved, accepted happy with their place in society where, where they are supposed to be loving, living, working and rolling, rolling along with their day. And certainly as a musician, and I think also as, you know, if you were a therapist, anyone who is sort of on the receiving end of people's pain and their stories and, you know, you can't help but look at all of society and say, oh my God, what have we done to create such unhappiness?
0: You've declared that one day... You turned around and it just happened without you realizing it. You believed you were real. Any advice for the rest of us that are still suffering from what you call the fraud police? Yeah, just
1: pop a Prozac and you'll be fine. (laughs) That didn't work for me. Uh, Yeah, me me neither. I was on Xanax. Uh, Um. Yeah, I mean, I think it would be very cavalier and, uh, and stupid of me to recommend that everyone just run out and become a street performer and an emotional singer-songwriter, and voila, your problems will go away. <laughs> um, it took me years and years of actually being on the receiving end of a very authentic brand of recognition from my fellow mammals that what I was doing was of importance to them. How did your relationship with your fellow
0: mammals change from being the eight-foot bride to being part of the Dresden Dolls?
1: Well, in my street performance days, everything was pretty much unspoken. I could feel a lot. I mean, people would walk by and express sometimes in words to me, sometimes in notes in my box. Sometimes they would wait for my performance to be over and come up to me and say, thank you for doing this. You really touched me. You really changed my day. I was really unhappy. You've really delighted me. And I would get a lot of positive feedback that way. And it was really delightful existence to feel like my cute little piece of, you know, street performance art was actually making even a modicum of impact in somebody's day that was sort of as an artist as sometimes that's all you need. And you know, coming into the Dresden Dolls, Brian and I and we were just a two piece. It was me on piano and Brian on drums after every single show pretty much without exception for years. Would always Go out into the crowd after the show is over. The pretense is sign merchandise, but that was pretty much the excuse to connect with people and gather their stories. Because for every person who just wanted a CD signed, there was another person who said... Your album got me through the death of my father. Can I have a hug? Can you write something on my arm that I can get tattooed? Your music has meant so much to me. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Amanda. Please keep doing what you're doing. And hearing that year after year from these people who had real jobs, you know, what I consider real jobs, this person was a programmer, this person was a lawyer, this person was in grad school, this person, you know, these are all people from all walks of life. To hear them say to us, Please keep doing what you're doing. I consider that what you are doing is of value. That, again, was sort of like the water that wore down the stone of maybe maybe this is a fake job. Maybe this is insignificant. Maybe this is vain. Because if you hear that again and again and again, you can't help but think maybe this isn't vanity. And I think it's really important to separate out a desire for like fame, success, and recognition for just a different brand of authentic recognition. From the outset, I didn't really want the fame and recognition and the success that was just status or a label. What I really wanted was to feel like I was doing something that contributed and mattered and that I was in a true conversation with the world and with other people and, you know, feeling significant and like my talent or my gift, if it was musical or entertainment-wise, great, that that was actually contributing to other people's lives the way I had felt so touched and magnified by other people's music when I was 14 and 15 and 16 and I lived with headphones on and, you know, that I might be able to provide that gift for somebody else. So, yeah, I mean, I think the street performance and the Dresden Dolls and the whole music career, they can be seen under that one umbrella, which is the currency of human connection.
0: You and Brian released your first album together on September twenty sixth, two 2003, on Eight Foot Records, which was your own label. You then signed with a major label, and the album was re-released on April twenty seventh, two 2004. Ultimately, working with a major label was not for you. <laughs> no. And you did whatever you could to get out of your contract. You've said that given the opportunity... A small, consistent portion of the population will happily pay for art. Mm -hmm. And that was unequivocally proven true after you left the label and started your solo career and decided to create an album funded by a Kickstarter campaign. Mm -hmm. You asked for $100,000 to make your album Theater is Evil, but you made history when your fans contributed – over $1.2 million to help you make the album. This was the first time any musician raised a seven-figure amount using crowdfunding. I think it's still the highest amount ever raised for a musician. You've said that if you love people enough, they will give you everything. And I want to know how you love people enough.
1: Well, I don't know. (laughs) That's a big question. I mean, I... I think everything that we've talked about up until this point is part of that answer. I never wanted to separate from the audience. And I think that approach, which was never a strategic business approach, it was an emotional approach. Oh, it couldn't have been. I mean, it wouldn't have felt in any way authentic. Um, But the fact that Brian and I approached the Dresden Dolls that way and we treated our fans like family – Always we really tried not to have a hierarchy of don't talk to the fucking talent and we 're busy. We considered you know our fans, our lifeblood, our supporters, our patrons our our comrades in this sort of mutual conversation of love and art and life, and everything we did was and fed that narrative and when I went solo, nothing changed. I was still in a constant conversation with my family, my fans as my community and they went through my hardships with me. I blogged my life and my trials and my tribulations and it was such an ongoing intimate relationship. Years and years and years rolled on and I had stayed in a million people's houses and I had called upon my fans to contribute information and help and rides and food and places to stay and suggestions for opening acts and that, you know, it was just one big, messy, beautiful collaboration. By the time I landed in 2012 and went to that community and said, okay, this time I'm asking, it wasn't even asking just for money and capital. It was asking for pre-orders. I want you guys to pre-order this record. You're not going to get it for 6 months but I want your $10 now. I want your $20 now. I want if you want the super fancy package, I want your 100 and your $500 now and I'm going to take all of your money. I'm going to create an album. I'm going to create beautiful products and art books and I'm going to take all of this money, manifest it into things that I'm going to send back to you. But you need to trust me that you're going to get this stuff in 6 months. And when I asked them to trust me, their answer was, of course, we're going to trust you because we've been engaged in a relationship with you for years.
0: Why did so many people get so pissed off about it?
1: You know, if you look at it in that context, that kind of trust, which is so delicious, and when you feel that kind of trust with 25,000 people, it, it's like being on a mountaintop. There might have been some degree of jealousy, I think. And I think a lot of people regarded my career and my relationship with the fans as suspicious because how could that be real? How could 25,000 people trust Amanda Palmer so much that they would throw her that much money in advance for something they don't know that they're going to get and they don't even know what it's going to look like and what it's going to sound like and they're not going to get it for six months? How is that possible? And it was possible because we were in a long-term relationship. And when you're in a long-term relationship, there's a degree of trust that's pretty significant. And I then went out of my way to over-deliver and give those guys the moon. I mean some of those people ordered $250 packages and I spent $300 getting them packages that were so beautiful and cost so much to ship that I ate it. Financially, you know, and I've now since talked about how I actually kind of ate it financially on my Kickstarter. Everyone thinks that I walked away with pockets full of money. No, and I think you lost money on it, didn't you? I, actually, I saw the math. I actually lost money on the Kickstarter and was happy to lose the money because those twenty five thousand people still really trust me. And when I went back to them and said, "Hey, support my Patreon." Let's get in an even deeper, longer-term relationship, and I'll keep your credit cards forever. And when I feel like making art, I'll charge you. 7,000 of them have now said, yes, we trust you that much. Here's our credit card. When you make art, let us know. We're happy to pay you that 10 bucks. We can't wait to see what you make. And had I not over-delivered on my Kickstarter, those 7,000 people might have not felt able to trust me. So who knows?
0: Speaking of trust, let's talk about Anthony, your best friend. Your husband Neil and your new baby Ash. Anthony was born in 1948. You met him when you were 13, when he regaled you with tales from the 60s that made your heart ache to turn back the clock and live in a time when everybody hitchhiked and smoked hash while listening to <laughs> Joni Mitchell on crackly vinyl records. Man, do I wish I was with you for that.
1: I'm, oh man, I wish I had lived in the 60s. I know I have my no regrets policy. But that's that's right up there with a couple of other things. Um, like what? That, well, the twenties too. Okay. I mean, I would gi- I would give anything to be able to just go back there for a couple of years and hang out. In your Hollywood biopic, you've said
0: <laughs> that Anthony would be Mr. Miyagi. Is that how you pronounce it?
1: Mr. Miyagi. Mr. Miyagi. From the Karate karate Kid. kid. Yes, of
0: course. But he'd be played by uh, Robert De Niro. (laughs) He was your best friend until he died last year. And in many ways, in reading your book, it seemed that he was the one that really taught you how to trust.
1: He had a big part of it. He moved next door when I was nine years old. And he introduced me to a whole realm of Buddhism, Uh, Yoga, meditation, and tools of compassion, especially self-compassion. And he was a through line in my life from the time I was a teenager because he was always my first phone call when something went wrong. And he had a fantastic way of dispensing life advice without ever uh, telling me what to do. If I was sort of tangling with things, he would he would sort of guide me. He was a therapist, so he spoke the world of not dictating from above, but kind of letting me fill in the blanks and come to my own obvious conclusions at the end of the day. And since he was bent the way he was in in terms of Buddhism and and compassion, you know, the path leading towards the least pain. So he was a magnificent teacher. One of the stories that is a a bit of a theme through your book is
0: doing something until it hurts enough. Mm. Can you share that anecdote? Because
1: I don't want to paraphrase it. And and it's
0: such an important and beautiful theme throughout the book.
1: Yeah. And it's an anecdote that Anthony used to tell me about um, that the story goes that there's a farmer sitting on his porch and one of his friends ambles up to chat with him. And here's, here's the farmer's dog in the house, like yelping and yelping and, and in pain. And the friend says, what's the matter with your dog? And the farmer says, oh, he's, he's sitting on a nail. And the friend says, well, why doesn't he get up off the nail? And the farmer says, oh, it doesn't hurt enough yet. <laughs> Isn't it so
0: perfect? I mean, that is the... Perfect story. It includes everything that is important about understanding life.
1: Yeah. I mean, we are so unkind to ourselves. Yes. And I would come back to that anecdote a lot, especially, you know, when you're in the what I was in the emotional hangover and chaotic disaster of a bad relationship choice or name your masochism— And there you are, the human being going like, how is it possible that I am doing this to myself? Am I crazy? It is nice to know that that is a shared human experience and that we punish ourselves and are so unkind to ourselves when we do not need to be. In the introduction to your book, Brene Brown
0: states, I spent most of my life trying to create a safe distance between me and anything that felt uncertain and anyone who could possibly hurt me. But like Amanda Palmer, I have learned that the best way to find light in the darkness is not by pushing people away, but by falling straight into them.
1: I love her writing so much.
0: Did Anthony help you do that?
1: Yeah. That that sentence pretty much encapsulates Anthony's lesson to me, and I've got to say he... He himself was very unable to do that. He was abused as a kid and had a very hard time trusting people and was a very controlling – You know, he had to control his environment. He was terrified to fly. He was very into self-defense. Mm-hmm. He was very guarded and very armored and was really only felt at ease when he had dominion over a situation and in that sense you know when I found myself getting into like phase two of my career and feeling like an adult and in my 30s and getting married and was able to really regard Anthony's flaws there were a few moments of like oh my god I really am the student surpassing the teacher because Anthony has given me the tools that he himself couldn't even use because he was um, very afraid And here I am, like, (laughs) you know, on, like, team trust humanity and, like, (laughs) team sleep in fucking people's, you know, strangers' houses, which is something that would have terrified Anthony. And also, I mean, speaking of my husband, terrifies my husband. I don't consider it a coincidence that some of the most important relationships in my life have been with men who have had trust issues and who find me— very tasty because you know i put my foot in the door for them and remind them that people are good that you don't have to be afraid of everybody that you know and i in my in my naivete need them to to remind me that like maybe you don't want to sleep on that couch maybe and and we hold each other we keep each other in balance which is those are the best relationships where you You hold on to each other and, you know, you're you're on either side of the the raft so that you don't sink.
0: You've written how you historically had a hard time keeping boyfriends and were used to relationships going from your words – hi to fuck me to fuck you <laughs> in under three weeks. I love that. It's one of my favorite lines in the book. From I, I, you have to to say, to hi, you. hi. From <laughs> to fuck me to fuck you. From hi to fuck me to fuck you.
1: Excellent. That well
0: put, Debbie, <laughs> in under three weeks. And how those relationships tended to slam into painful realities mm-hmm. when the initial rush was over. And when Neil started to trust you, he told you that he'd believed for a long time, deep down, that people didn't actually fall in love and they were all faking it.
1: How did you two manage to fall in love? Uh faith, I guess. Um, I mean, I I came at it from the opposite approach, which is God, in my early 20s, I could fall in love. And I mean we're talking genuinely, authentically, I just fucking – I love you so much in a matter of days or weeks. I mean and um, that had its own nuclear fallout because if you can fall in love that quickly as as I did – uh, it could sometimes be very fleeting, and I, you know, and I stepped on a lot of people's feelings by falling in love and then getting distracted and go going over there and wait, who were you? Did not? Oh, you're the person I fell in love with three months ago, but now I'm going over here because there's this, and I I did a lot of that, and my style has been sort of fast and furious and just sort of you know emotionally slutty, whereas Neil's approach was. Um, very, very, very untrusting, I mean he really he really didn 't believe in love he didn 't buy that it was a thing, but he fell in love with you very
0: quickly. He told you i what at your first coffee together that he was there for the long
1: haul he wasn 't kidding. I mean, Neil is very smart and he 's very strategic. Neil Gaiman is more strategic than most people realize in in matters of the heart and in matters of publishing. I think he saw me in the giant world of heart Tetris. He saw me as a piece that, if it worked, um, could fit together with him in, a, in an unprecedented way. And and I think he was right. And he was just sitting around waiting for me to realize it.
0: You were together for years with him over and over asking you to marry him and you resisted. And what what changed your mind?
1: Uh he just got, you know, he wore me down. <laughs> he push over. I mean, I, that gets into some complicated things about our relationship. You've got to remember Neil is 15 years older than me. And he was just coming out of a divorce when we met. And it was actually pretty important to him. Not to me, but very important to him. He wanted the world to recognize our relationship as real. You and weren't going to be his girlfriend. I, well, or the cute, slutty rock star that he happened to be sleeping with that week. And I think – and especially for his kids because Neil has three grown kids. And I think putting the stamp of this is my fiancé was basically an official way of saying you, you need to take this woman seriously. And I got that, and I respected it. And while I wish society was different, and I've never been a huge fan of marriage and the idea of marriage and the sanctity of marriage, I think a lot of it is is a little bit on crack. I did understand that that was pretty much a fast lane move to get everyone to recognize our relationship as, "Hey, everyone, we're you know we're waving our hands. Take this seriously." You know, but marriage is pretty significant. I would say at this point it feels like a drop in the bucket and, and a laughable folly compared to the commitment of having a child. Mm. Um, because when you can get married nowadays, you can just get divorced. It's like a kind of a serious dating situation. When you have a child, there is no Apple Z. You cannot undo that commitment. You've written about how Neil likes
0: being in control. He loves having answers. He loves fixing and helping people. Uh, But he has a really hard time letting people help him, as do you. And you wouldn't even let him help you financially after you were married, Mm. when you needed a bridge loan because you were waiting for the Kickstarter to happen. What changed?
1: What changed? I I think we both changed. I mean, Neil and I are incredibly similar in the way that we are we are used to having uh, control and dominion over our worlds. You know, Neil is very much the CEO and CFO of Neil Gaiman Land and Amanda is is very much the same in Amanda Land. You know, and we both have a lot of pride. And you know, part of not wanting to take a loan from my husband to bridge my, you know, my Kickstarter gap was Again, that feeling that, you know, I should be able to do this myself. And having to make the evolved leap of doing this myself means taking money from Neil right now. That's what I need to do in this situation. Also being in relationship with Neil for years, I have now been able to see that there is a constant exchange of goods. Some of it is money. Some of it is time and attention, some of it is love, some of it is advice, some of it is I edit your thing and you edit my thing, and there's no price tag on any of that. And it is a mistake in any relationship to sit there and keep score. That is the kryptonite to any human relationship. Especially, and I mean, your feet really get held to the fire when it comes to, and what happens when you have cancer? How am I going to pay you back for the hours that you've spent at my bedside? Oh, yeah, I it's mean, that that's Love sh- is in a ledger book. Can't no, be. it really isn't. And I think my relationship with Neil and also my relationship with Anthony have both been huge cosmic lessons in how to let that impulse go. We are not keeping score. And love really cannot keep score if it's real love.
0: In September of last year, you and Neil had a baby. You named the baby Anthony after Anthony. You call him Ash. He's here with us today for anybody that might hear the little the squeaking Cooing and the squeaking in the background. Um, before you had the baby, you wrote a blog post responding to a person who had written you Apparently, they were worried you were going to stop being an artist when you gave birth and that your Patreon supporters might be paying for diapers as opposed to music. (laughs) And I know you worried about this as well. Were you still going to be able to be the artist you knew you were Mm. when you had your baby? How are you feeling about it now? Pretty great.
1: (laughs) Um, I was just discussing this with my friend Alina Simone, who's a great journalist and, and writer, And she was one of my mom mentors. Um, She had a kid five years ago, and she's one of the people. um, I have a sort of set of friends that I've looked to as guideposts for what my existence might be like. Um, You know, a lot of women who are independent artists, and I've I've interviewed them ad nauseum about how they've coped and what they've done. And one of the themes that's come up a lot from my my mom friends who are artists is – there is a an inspiration and a fury that hits you after you have a child where you become very focused. And I heard this again and again and again, and I didn't actually connect the dots until – I had my own child and when he was about three months, the fury, the fury came and I put aside time. I started becoming very disciplined. I recorded an entire David Bowie record. I went in and produced a new song called Machete. I started putting together projects and collaborations at a sort of a fast and furious pace. And talking about this with Ali the other day, I realized that the missing piece of information – That she might have said at the time, but if she did, I missed it or it didn't synthesize was it's not that having a kid magically does something to you hormonally and that the kid and the act of being a mother is really inspiring. It's that you're so driven by insecurity (laughs) that all of a sudden you're not going to be seen and see yourself as an artist that you hit this spot where you're like, oh, my God, if I don't fucking do this and do it now – I'm going to be lost. And you get into the driver's seat, you turn the key, and you start driving very, very fast. Because you see that the alternative is uh, not making art. And if the alternative is not making art and being defined only as a mother and a caretaker, it's not an option. And so you sort of put your discipline into turbo in order to make sure that you can still define yourself the way you used to. And again I've I've also used the child, you know, the child ash, my baby as a source of inspiration. One of the Patreon songs that I put out last month was a kind of a litany of of guilt and self-doubt and complaints about, you know, how difficult it is to Is that a mother's confession? That's a mother's confession. Oh my god, that and-
0: song is a genius song. It's so good.
2: Our son is four months old, his name is Anthony, or Ash for short, and he's too small to do things by himself. We were in LA over Christmas in a rental, and we jury rigged a place to change his diapers on a shelf. I was peeing in the bathroom and had left him for a second because I thought he couldn't move and he was safe. As I came out, I saw him falling in slow motion to the floor. It was probably the worst moment of my life.
1: And, you know, I was even insecure putting that out because I feel like there is, I have my own self-stigma about making any kind of art that involves the baby. Why? Because it seems so corny, you know, and I've had this, like, Creeping fear that, like, all of a sudden, I'm going to write songs about children or songs about motherhood, and those seem so scary because they're generally so corny and awful. But of course, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it with a giant dose of Amanda Palmerness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this song is about the baby not dying, so yeah, it's not. And quite it's a song about a lullaby. It's a song about leaving the baby in the back of the car, which, by the way, every fucking parent has done. And when you put a song like that out there, you get a bunch of waving hands and nodding heads going, oh, my God, I have never really told anyone about it, but I also left the baby in the back of the car. <laughs> and that's the sort of the Amanda Palmer way is like, let's actually talk about what this is really like. And it's not very romantic and it's not very corny. It's actually fucking terrifying. And these are the things that happen and these are the conflicted feelings that you have. And it's no holds barred artistic truthiness. And that's the way it goes. So, you know, trying to still keep it real and... As it always has been, I'm always trying to navigate around the traps that I am afraid to fall in. You know, the cartoon and the caricature of the angry, angsty female piano player and the caricature and the cartoon of the balanced mother who is just singing about her kid. Like, all of those things are so terrifying to me that I will make artistic choices to circumnavigate them. And that is what keeps the art interesting
0: the thing that i found so fascinating about a mother's confession was the emotion that occurs through the 6-minute or 10-minute song and <laughs> yeah. and you laugh and cry like you literally laugh out loud at some of the lines and then in some of the lines i found myself just beginning to to cry Um, And that same thing happened last night. I was at your performance at the City Winery, which is a precursor to your participating in a tribute to David Bowie at Radio City Music Hall this weekend. Can you talk a little bit about the work that you and Jarek Bischoff did after David Bowie died?
1: Yeah, so one of the things that I did in my Fast and Furious race back to Music making was a song called Machete, and it was written for Anthony's memorial. And I happened to be in L.A. over Christmas, and Jarek just came over to pay a social call. And I was sort of complaining to him that I was starting to feel the non-artness of my life. I mean, I had pretty much, I had no nanny, no babysitter. I was just 24-7 Boob. Boob. Boob and dishes and washing towels, and it was start- <laughs> starting to drive me crazy. And I had this new song that was kind of burning a hole in my pocket that I thought was really good and that I could tell needed arrangement. And I know when I write a song that is going to be solo piano or a solo ukulele, and I know when I write a song that needs drums and driving rhythm and jerric strings and Machete was one of those songs where I could I could tell that it was going to want a band arrangement. And I mentioned this to Jarek and he said, well, we're here. We're in L.A. You have your Patreon money. We could just press that button and have a $30,000 budget. Let's just go do it. Let's put a band together and let's do it. And so, you know, an hour later, we had called up Ben Folds and we had a studio date set a week later. We had the budget from my Patreon, which made, meant that we could just hire musicians and hire strings and hire engineers.
2: I have never liked the box of knives you said was a paradox because you're kind but withstood a childhood that robbed you blind of love that was safe and so you learned to fight Never liked the box of knives you said was a paradox because your kind buddy withstood a childhood that robbed you blind of love that was safe and so you learned to fight. I have never liked
1: It all happened very quickly and that song was getting mixed and Jarek was sort of sending me mixes over email. Uh when David Bowie died. And we got on the phone the day after he died and we were commiserating and in disbelief. And I I joked, half-joked, as I usually – most of my jokes are half-jokes. I said, you know, we should just ditch Machete right now and just do a bunch of David Bowie strings. Like right now. Let's just do it. Let's just use a Patreon for that. Just get a string quartet together. Are you doing anything this week? And Jurek was like, no, let's just – let's do it. And you did it. And I did it, and I did it in, you know, a week later. I was standing in a recording studio in Santa Fe, New Mexico for... I was in the studio for about 20 hours. Derek had put together these arrangements. He had gotten a string quartet in six days later, laid down the string tracks, emailed them to me in Santa Fe, and there I was in the vocal booth singing David Bowie songs and going like, this is the best, this is the... You know, when someone dies... It almost felt like there was no other better answer than to get into the studio and sing his songs and feel his life force and the things that he created, like literally coming out of your mouth and into a microphone and getting with these beautiful strings. It felt like such a honor to be able to do that, and it felt like such a perfect way to honor Bowie.
0: Amanda, did you want to play us a a live song here in the
1: studio? I would be honored. Um, Since we don't have a piano, I will have to play one of my my ukulele tunes. But I've got a really good one. And given everything we've talked about concerning Anthony, this was a song that I wrote um, inspired by Anthony and his – sort of his message to me. And um, I wrote it when, when he was really, really sick about a year before he died. It's called Bigger on the Inside.
0: Wonderful. Amanda Palmer singing Bigger on the Inside.
2: Love And the truth is I don't know I think it's funny That he asked me Cause I don't feel like a fighter Lately I am too unhappy You um Another one can ever see, but trying is the point of life, so don't stop trying.
0: I'd like to close the show today with a quote from Neil's Aunt Helen. You include this line in your magnificent song, Machete. You sing, she survived the Warsaw ghetto, and she always says I love you when she sees you, because you never know. Amanda Palmer, thank you for making the world a more generous, kind-hearted, safe, and trusting place. You can learn more about Amanda Palmer on her website, amandapalmer.net, where you can also find a link to her Patreon site and her remarkable music. Her New York Times bestselling book, The Art of Asking, is now out in paperback and also available as an audiobook. This is the 11th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Mark Dudley. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens